Welcome to the Independent Artist Podcast, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Artists. Also sponsored by Zapplication. I'm Will Armstrong, and I'm a mixed media artist. I'm Douglas Sigworth, glassblower. Join our conversations with professional working artists. Hey, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It has been a couple of weeks since Douglas and I have recorded together, but it's nice to be able to record during Pride Month. So I just wanted to jump on here and wish everybody, uh, uh, everybody who's celebrating and everybody who's supportive a, a happy Pride Month to our LGBTQ uh, plus community. Absolutely. Yeah, I second that big time. So that's great. Yeah, it's always been a safe place uh, uh, to me as far as uh, art shows go and uh, definitely an ally as far as the community and the community at large always been proud that, that we've been been able to, to be that way. Yeah. And I mean, isn't aren't we really all part of the community anyway? I mean, in the sense that if not ourselves, people we love, people we care about, you know, it's it's a time to be proud and to allow people to be who they are and to embrace it and celebrate it. So happy Pride, everyone. So, uh, yeah, what else is going on, man? We've had a couple of shows under our belt since the last time we talked. We have been running a race here, haven't we? It's been uh, mm-hmm. it's been quite crazy. I will say that a couple of conversations I've had recently out on the road that a lot of us artists are going through some shit. So I just want to, you know, send out a, a big virtual hug to everyone who's just making it through, everyone. So... Uh, you don't know. touch me, Douglas. <laughs> Get out of here. Don't, I, want to, I want to be touched. I don't like that. <laughs> I, uh, heads up. I think I, I think Reiko uh, accidentally tricked me into agreeing to record a, a podcast every week now so get to work oh she sir. did she apparently she tricked <laughs> she wants it every week and i she she talked in circles there and got me to agree to it so that's not happening that, that's no that, <laughs> that's not we're, gonna we're, no that can't happen <laughs> i can't honestly happen. <laughs> i'm barely able to hang on with the every two week schedule i love the show uh, so don't get me wrong but i'm i'm definitely right. Hitting the uh, the stride of of, of oh, show fatigue, if you will, or maybe panic show, you know, panic, definitely panic show party. panic. I mean, for me, it's like I just can't even keep up with with what I've committed myself to. I feel bad that I have to give a last minute cancellation, which I had to do this week for Des Moines. But then right. I also feel bad for the collectors that I've been getting some messages online. I've left a, a, let, a letting people know kind of thing so I don't have collectors come looking for us and we're not there. And I've had right. a few responses almost like they're my mom making me feel guilty for not being able to be there. And I, <laughs> I already feel bad. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I actually I've got one on the hook. I'm not doing Des Moines this year either, unfortunately. And I uh, I always love that show. And, and it's it's hard not to do it. Me but, too. Um I, I am on the hook, honestly. I got an Instagram message. I'm on the hook for, for my possible best Des Moines ever. Oh, really? <laughs> and I'm not even going to be there. So oh, really? We'll see. How, keep keep your fingers crossed on that one. Somebody from um, Des Moines is toying with you a little bit or presenting an offer for a oh, commission yeah, or something? A little, they're, they're flirting. Yeah, flirting. we're in the flirting stage. We'll, mm-hmm. see, if I, we'll see if I can close it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I, think I, can, I think I can take them home with me. Awesome. That's excellent. <laughs> Hey, so last episode, you talked to David Mayhew, and when we had our chance to talk, it was actually before his episode was recorded. So uh, I, I wanted to, to share a story I had about getting stuck in a storm on my way 
Oh, yeah. We were talking about, you know, going out to Cherry Creek and how you were getting calls like, pull off, man, pull up, you know, pull over to the side. Um, Well, for me, I was coming home from Oklahoma City one year from doing that show. And I wanted to get a couple of couple of hours in on the road before I stopped for the night, but I drove sure. right into a freaking tornado right around the Ooh. right around the border, and it was dark, so I didn't really know what was going on. But I knew that I was having trouble with steering, and I was blowing back and forth, and the rain was coming down pretty heavy. So I pulled off. And yeah, a, steering is important. We we like that. That's a nice option. It's a feature. It's a feature, right? Yeah. So I pull off the road. I I stop at a gas station and. I see people running in panicked. So they obviously knew something I didn't know. And this was before we had weather apps on our phones. I think I had one of those old flip phones where, you know, if you're going to text, you have to hit the button five times to get to the right letter you need. Three letters per key. Yeah, exactly. So I get in and right as I get into the, the gas station, an attendant locks the door behind me. I'm like, whoa, they're like tornado coming. Did he think the lock was going to help? No, they like just lock. Stay out, tornado. You're not invited. I think it has more to do with like crime. You know, they wanted to lock us all uh, in and keep anyone out because shit was coming across the highway. Right. They told us all to walk into their walk-in freezer. So me and about twenty other people are huddled together, shoulder to shoulder, in this dark walk-in freezer. <laughs> no light. It was like crazy. So there is. And it's, <laughs> I'm thinking Renee's not going to. And it's like 15 degrees or whatever. It's a deep it freeze, was right? Nutty. So I'm thinking Renee has no idea where I am. Wait, did Renee was Renee with? No, you? I was home by myself. She was home with okay. the kids, and the kids were little. This, like I said, it was a long time okay. ago. Yeah. So here I am on my phone with a little light on my phone, trying to text her where I'm at and blah blah blah. Storm came and went. I was okay, but for a good. 25 minutes, it was a little hairy, and I didn't know what the heck oh was going to happen. Oh, my God. And I'm sure you're driving, you know, it's Oklahoma City that's in the, you know, late spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's you know, you're probably wearing shorts or a T-shirt <laughs> or something like that, you know. <laughs> I don't even remember any of that. I just remember being panicked that I was going to die and nobody would know where I was. <laughs> Amazing. Here's I got one for yeah. you. We were driving. I, I was I was it was similar. I might have actually been coming home from OKC. Okay. Um, but I'm coming home and it's, uh, you know, it's tornado season and I'm driving across and, um, I love the Mississippi river and I'm crossing the Mississippi and I'm just, I'm looking behind me though. And I'm like, good God, that storm behind me, you know, it's like that Coke bottle green, you know, with the inky clouds. And I'm like, whoa, all right, let me, let me pull over. So I pulled over at the, the first stop and it was the Mississippi rest station. Okay. And I stopped in and, uh. I'm kind of, it's a big, big old brick building and and sure it's got a bunch of glass, but it's got places to shelter. And I'm like, okay, this seems like a safe spot. And, uh, it's, it's close to five o'clock and well, Douglas, that's when the Mississippi rest station closes for the day uh, or the welcome center. That's, uh, you were not welcome at five (laughs) o'clock. Yeah. (laughs) I was not welcome. We're like, and it was just some pimply kid, you know, and he's like, I'm sorry, we're closing, man. We got to get um, them. We close. And I'm like, uh, you're going to kick us all out into that storm. And we're all like, it's a pretty nice welcome center. And we're all standing around watching the TVs. And of course, they've interrupted it to show all of the tornadoes in the area. Uh-huh. And, and it's right freaking there. Oh, and he's like, he just boots us all out. And, and uh, I was like, no, nah, I'm not. 
we're not leaving, dude. Yeah. We're not going to, that's not safe. So he just didn't. And he was, he was like, I, I could call the police. I'm like, eh, I think they got us there on that. <laughs> side. I think we, they might be on our, our side. Maybe I'll call them. And that'll yeah. be, I could, I could say, Hey, um, this guy. He'll come not, check it out after the storm is over and we're all good, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. When, uh, you know, the trees are a little, look like chewed food and, Ugh. um, and, like you, you ever run over a, a sapling with your lawnmower? Yes. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's kind of what the trees look like after the big storm. So, yeah. It's um, pretty crazy the, the running into those storms and just hearing what, uh, hearing the experiences that David goes through and everything like that. So I, I, I enjoyed right. that talk. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so here's an interesting story. We just came from Milwaukee, and sure. Milwaukee is one of my – I have really fond memories. It's a really important show to me. For one, it's uh-huh. our home state. It's where we live. Uh, but for two, a number of years ago, we met some collectors. And, you know, sometimes we don't always know who's out in the crowd and who could really impact – changes in our career, that sort of thing, you know? And so in 2008, we met a couple who, very wealthy man, biophysicist, did research for MRIs and all that kind of stuff. So he sold these patents and blah, blah, blah. So they wanted to start a, a glass collection for Wisconsin, the Museum of Wisconsin Art, because the contemporary glass movement started in Madison and in the state of Wisconsin. And so they wanted to build a substantial collection here at, the, at you know, in West Bend, north of Milwaukee. Sure. Yeah. Hey, I, I know a perfect place to start. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he bought a, a piece from us that started the collection, which was a huge honor and all that kind of stuff. So we, we did this installation, which I've talked about on the show before. And the, the thing that's strange about it is People think it's a Chihuly, and it was made by us. It doesn't look like anything Chihuly's ever done, but because it's right. hanging glass, people just think it's a Chihuly. That's yeah. Is I mean that's the benchmark, right? Uh-huh. Like that's the that's that's people's like standard uh, point of reference for glass. Exactly. is Chihuly, right? I mean, he's the most famous. Uh, his his studio is the most famous. So totally got it. So this this lady and her daughter walks in our booth. And they see one of our sculptures that we that is very reminiscent of this installation that we have. And they looked at it, and the one woman said, oh, look, that's the Ch- Chiluli. I, she mispronounced <laughs> it, of course. That's the Chiluli yeah, that's... that's at the Museum of Wisconsin Art. And I said right. to her, oh, are you talking about West Bend? And she said, yeah, oh, I love that piece from Chiluli. I said, well, that wasn't made by Chiluli. And she said, well, how do you know? I said, because we made it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that that lady right there and I did that. We did that. Yeah. It's, so it's not, you know, and it's uh, yeah, Cholula, yeah. a little hot sauce. So we had a few of Got those it. moments because it's, it's so close to Milwaukee that, uh, you know, it's it's recognizable. So that was kind of interesting talking to people about it. It is. I always think it's weird when people come by and they they see you. I've got a gallery that represents me in Chicago and they'll see me at Old Town and they'll be like, um, and their immediate go to is that I'm ripping off the artist that is, you know, that they saw in the gallery when I'm like, no, that's that's me. Like, that's isn't that funny. They never even consider that they're meeting the artist of the work that they 
the first go-to is that it's a ripoff. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're an outdoor artist, ah. and this was indoors. Mm. This was fancy, and you're not fancy. No, this is – You're bad. No, this is <laughs> – Yeah, it's funny which way, uh, you know, the direction that folks go to. I, I think it's – I don't know, that that's their first instinct anyway. Yeah. So, hey, I, I feel like I need to bring something up, Will. I, I feel like, you know – you have been such an incredible sport for the last few years that we've been doing this because I recognize that being a glassblower, there are plenty of words we use that have like this <laughs> this kind of like double meaning. And it's just mm, such a, yeah. a natural thing for me to say. And you have never – well, you've given me the look like, oh, come on, Douglas. So like when I say <laughs> I'm going to go out and blow, you give me right. that look like, uh well, I can't you know, I, I honestly, I, I don't like repetition, and I feel like uh, it's such an easy, low-hanging fruit. Um, <laughs> but I will admit to the fact that, uh, like, my wife will ask me, "Are you recording?" And I'll, I'll just say, uh, "No, Douglas is blowing," and then she'll just, <laughs> then, then we have a laugh about it. But it's not. I imagine that, like, you know, like Gregory's story is balls. And mm -hmm. your uh, constant blowing—it's um, just such low-hanging fruit it that I, I can't imagine that that's <laughs> something that you're not just sick to freaking death. I of. try not to actually use the name of the reheating chamber in our studio that is called a glory hole, just mm. because of that same reason. People look at us and go, "The what? The, did, what did I you see. just call that thing?" It's I see. Yeah. <laughs> hey, this is an interesting story. Uh, years and years ago, and, and friends of, of uh, uh, yes, I have a glory hole segue. Okay, here we go. Gentlemen. Speaking <laughs> of glory holes, speaking of low hanging fruit, <laughs> um, we've got. Uh, so, I, years and years ago, I was was honored enough to have been invited to go to Chris Bruno's wedding, and uh, he uh, there it was in a in a state park, and in the mm -hmm. state park, and and everybody's getting you know people were getting changed and and whatnot in in the restroom. I was like. That's the first time I've seen a, a, a real live glory hole. Look like really? a squirrel nod through the wall. Okay. But uh, I was like, well, that's that's not anything I want to put anything no. in. That's not. No, that's not. I think you went back that's, anyway. Uh, that's that's a that's a leap of faith. That is isn't, it? <laughs> isn't that something? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, you're right. I, there are so many moments in this podcast where I, I get into my. Um, that's what she said, and I don't <sighs> hit it. But thank you for for uh, acknowledging me because it is a it is a. Um, it's hard. It's a temptation. It's it's, it's a it low hanging fruit, as you said, and you are very oh, intellectual sure. in your humor. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I just I keep it super highbrow. Everybody knows that. All Man, right. that's hilarious. Well, you know what? Speaking of uh, hilarious and and uh, good conversation, I always enjoy talking to you, sir. But I think it's time to let the folks. Here are the Zachmans. We've got Jeff and CJ Zachman here on the show this week and couldn't be more happy to, to sit down and get the, uh, the ins and outs of a father-son relationship that are on the road. It's, it's pretty fascinating to, to hear the, the friendship that those two guys have. I, I probably don't even need to say this up front, but listen for those moments where they finish each other's sentences or they like, <laughs> they like try and jump to the punchline. So it's kind of a little competitive. Who wants to be the one to finish the story? Yeah. So not Absolutely. only was this just like to hear their experiences, but it was so fun to see their relationship through what they didn't say or how they acted, you know? <laughs> Great point. Yeah. Great point. Really, really fun show. All right. Here we go. Hope you all enjoy the talk. This episode of the Independent Artist Podcast is brought to you by Zap. 
the digital application service where artists and art festivals connect. Well, sometimes I'm in a real hurry, and I just love that I have things that are saved in Zap to streamline my process. To that end, Douglas, one of my tricks with Zap is to favorite all of the shows that I'm even remotely considering. That way I can filter them all and then look at all the deadlines at once. But then there's other times when I have a little more time on my hands and I'm looking into other shows and I want to get to know about the show and all the information is right there in the prospectus with links to the website. I can see who the artists are that have participated in the past. You know, that's a great idea, Douglas, because one of the ways that I was finding shows at the very beginning was to go online and see who I felt my work looked good with. It's just great that all that information is organized and easy to look over when planning our next show season. All right. Thanks, you guys. Here I am. I'm with uh, the Zachmans. I'm with Father Jeff Zachman and his son, Carl Zachman, straight out of Fergus Falls, Minnesota, both kinetic sculpture artists. Thanks, you guys, for joining me today. Well, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Look at that in stereo, the two of you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is probably going to be a challenge for you to edit with two people coming at you. I haven't had a three-way conversation in a while. My first one that I did was our first season with Mickey Cunningham and her daughter, Reiko. Oh, that's um, right. Reiko Yucatel. And Mickey had the absolute worst Wi-Fi connection of all time, and she kept getting kicked off of the, the call. So I had to piece together all these sections to make it into a coherent <laughs> conversation. So anyway, how are you guys doing? What have you been up to these days? Oh, we're um, kind of gearing up for Cherry Creek right now. Just trying to Cherry Creek in the fall beyond that. I've got a heavy season coming up. I got a bit of a lighter season. I I had a really heavy spring. Mm. I ended up going from Fort Worth to Jazz Fest to Reston Mm. with a week in between every single trip. So Those are biggies. Yeah, they were. I typically see you at... It's the same events, but do you always travel together, go to the same shows, or do you have completely separate schedules? We have separate schedules, but we end up overlapping a lot just Mm -hmm, because there are only so many of the A-list shows that we both want to do. When we're both in, then it cuts our expenses because we can usually all fit in one vehicle, take a trailer if need be, and share Mm -hmm. hotels. And it's always nice to have somebody to drive with. Otherwise, we end up driving mm-hmm. by ourselves, and that gets boring. Mm-hmm. It really does. Mm-hmm. So it isn't like you r- rely on having the same schedule. If if one of you gets into a show, it's not like you guys say, oh, if we're not both in it, we're not doing it. it right. You, no. right. You're very independent on your own kind of c- career path. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like this year, he got into Fort Worth, and, and I decided I'm not going to do that show again until they change their policy and let me in. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Every once in a while, we get juried out, right? And right. I think you've had quite the run there, Jeff, at, at Fort Worth. Yeah, yeah. Last year it was really has absolute over-the-top record show for me. And this year, I didn't get in. It was like, ah! That's the way this business works, isn't yep, it? it is. Wow. I am in more often than not. I get in more than my share, so I'm, I'm not going to grumble about yeah. it. Well, Carl, you've been working on a project that you were telling me about. Can you Can you tell us about that? Well, yeah. So I... In my off time with my um, influences and all the historic type of stuff I put in my art, I spend a lot of time at uh, steam threshing shows and things like that, where Mm. they're running old construction equipment and vintage steam engines and stuff. And a family reached out to me a couple years ago and wanted a a scale model working water 
tender wagon to go behind their scale model steam engine, about mm -hmm. half scale. So I've spent two years in planning and sourcing, and last year I built the thing, and now I am in the, with the gap between shows, able to work in the, the wood finishing and all the powder coating and lettering and graphics and everything. So, wow. And is it like to scale sort of thing, or is it? Yeah. A, a, yep. It's fully working. I found originals out in South Dakota that I measured and photographed and documented. One of the gentlemen that I help with, he has, I think, 12 working steam engines and six water wagons. And wow. his son reconstructed the largest working steam engine tractor ever made, resurrected it. So I was able to go out to the family and they let me take measurements and carte blanche of everything and documented other ones I found around it and vintage catalogs and have recreated everything to about 95% accurate. I, I didn't put in the like 600 rivets in the water tank. Okay. I opted for one made out of a Freightliner diesel tank that I cut up and remanufactured. Okay. And this is all from your own own design. I mean, this isn't... Uh... This isn't like oh, yeah. a refurbishing of something. This is you creating it from... No, from scratch. From it's scratch. totally from scratch because it's a, a working model. Wow. So it's it's 61% of full, and the size is based off the size of the, the tank I had and the wheels that I got and salvaged. And then um, just to prove I could, I decided to make the cast iron water pump that goes on it from scratch, scratch built from all the parts uh, pretty much laying around the studio. I just had all the materials and and recut up stuff and welded it all together. And I uh, became part owner of a small foundry setup a couple years ago. So mm. I'll be casting all the brass ends with the logo in it and everything. So how did this project come to you? The family just reached out and said, Hey, you're a welder. You do metal work. You do, you, you know, you've helped operate this engine at the, the shows and things like that. And we need this water wagon, this tender to go behind it. The, the scale models, burn through water a lot faster than the bigger ones. Mm. So when you're in a parade and stuff, you need to have the extra water and the extra wood. Mm. Mm -hmm. So cool. uh, I, they, they just wanted a, a working wagon that was close, but I jumped all in because I could. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really interesting when those kinds of things come our way. I mean, a, a lot of times we, we get them from the shows. You know, people have these very unique projects that they present us with. Um, I mean... Mm -hmm. Jeff, you've had that that experience with all your years on the road, right? Yeah. Talk yeah. about some of your projects that well, you've done. But then on the other side, you do get, like, I was in Portland one guy at one yeah. time, and a, a guy came up and said, you're just the guy I'm looking for. Okay. I invented a left-handed back scratcher because all the back scratchers are right-handed. You're the guy that could make them for me. And then you have to find somehow to get out of that conversation <laughs> right. and find something to do on the other side of the booth. So you get all kinds of that stuff. Believe me, I have plenty of folks who are bringing their light fixture pennants at the art show, walking in the booth, asking if we could somehow make them a replacement, you know, like we're Home Depot or something yeah. like that or a lighting yeah. store. And we're like, uh, next. <laughs> yeah. Moving on, yeah. moving yeah. on. Right, right. <laughs> And and I'll, I'm willing to pay up to twenty five dollars for that. <laughs> My God, that is a tempting offer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, the project that had the longest recap for custom was that was that twenty two foot piece we did for that Las Vegas candy store. Oh, they needed this giant gumball machine for the entrance, and Vegas has is the second hardest city to build in after New York. 
okay. because of the regulations. You only can have so many percentage of your facade can be plastic. So they couldn't make the globe of the gumball machine in plastic. So this architect remembered seeing dad at Fort Worth years before, ah. and he went through all of his cell phone photos until he found the business card. Wow. So that was a custom thing that, because typically your pieces are flat. You're the kinetic sculptor who does the balls, the balls that go through the maze up and down, but it's vertical. This was more in a spherical shape, three-dimensional, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And it also had a lot of problems in that it was outdoors in Las Vegas. Yeah. It was a collaboration, too. Yeah. Okay. I usually do pretty thin, solid gears, but for this, I ended up doing four-foot, six-inches deep, hollow tins that all spun and hydraulics and everything. Cool. Yeah. Wow. It, it was a, a real mind-bending project, and because the permitting kept getting delayed— but the deadline didn't, we actually mm. end up building this massive sculpture in just a month and a half, something like that. Really? We just that, lived that's it. pretty fast. And it was, yeah. well, it was really frustrating. It's really fun to look back on it. Oh, I had a blast. That we, that we did this? Yeah. I had a blast. It wasn't that frustrating. Mm. But the weird thing was, is that they would come up, we would just, we'd think and be like, well, we can't do this. We don't know how we're going to make it work. Mm -hmm. And just as we were going to back out, we would go, hey, we can do this, like mm. the hydraulics for making it run slow and being, you know, sealed from dirt and stuff. Yeah. And then the next day they would be like, well, well, we need to know this specific. And it was the one we had figured out the day before that happened like three or four times. Yeah. yeah. Carl, it really seems like from getting to know you that, that you're that problem solver. You're the kind of the engineer, you know, like you can solve those problems and you make those things happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's kind of, Carl is a really good engineer. I'm a pretty good engineer, but Carl's a really good engineer, and I don't think he even realizes how good of an engineer he is. He doesn't have the engineering background. I mean, he, he went to school for a little while for engineering and then went off into other things, but mm -hmm. he just Art thinks that way. Archaeology. Yeah. Art and archaeology. Okay. Yep. I have a master's degree that influences my art. Mm. Well, Jeff, I know from w watching something that you had, a video that you have online, you were talking about how you can change and adapt your sculptures, either from the engineer point of view, where you can measure the velocity of the of the drop and the slope and the this and the that for the distance of the ball, or you can just do the trial and error thing and you can move the, you know what I mean? You can move the right. basket to well, where it needs to be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't realize that one was online, but uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's usually a line I give customers. I, I get the same few questions over and, and over one, and okay. over again. One of the questions I get all the time is a lot of times my sculptures will have a jump in it. And yeah. people are like, how in the world do you get it to go in that same spot all the time? So the, the line that I give them, and I don't do it all the time. It just depends on the right person because sure. I want to make sure they're having a good time and I'm not like making fun of them or something right, like that. Right, right, right. But mm -hmm. I'll tell them, well, there's two ways to do it. One way is you can figure out the mass of the ball, the slope of the track, the distance yeah. of the track, that matters the speed of the track, and then graphing all those together, it can tell you the trajectory on where it's going to be, and then, you know, figure it out that way. Or you can just make the jump, roll the ball down, wherever it lands, it goes in, make the basket. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and that's what I <laughs> and do. And you make adjustments and modifications. <laughs> yeah, and then I do the it that way. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. And I, and I probably get that question, oh, I better get it 50 times a day. When I'm at, wow. I, I get, like I said, I get the same questions over and over. 
The question okay. I get the most, and, and it's, it's funny because it's the question most artists hate. How long does it take you to make these? Right. And I'll, I'll tell you, they aren't I asking. Doug rolling his eyes. They're not asking what you think they're asking. Oh, they're not asking to do our hourly wage. They're not trying to calculate that. <laughs> no, not at all. And okay. I mean, I literally will get this questions, and this is no kidding, a hundred times a day. Okay. People will ask me that. And the first couple of years, I was being coy with it and things like that. And then I thought, what the hell? So I tell them, you know, it's anything from a few days to a few weeks to get these done. And I get two answers for that. One of them is that quick. And the other one is, oh, I can imagine. Because okay. they're focusing on one end or the other. And they're actually trying to build that story about you in their head to make you even better. So mm. when they figure out I'm doing it really fast, they're not saying, oh, he's ripping me off. They're thinking, oh, he's really good. That's an interesting take I've never even considered. Yeah, it's about, you know, the faster you do your craft, you know, the, the better you get at it and the better you get, the faster you get. Practice makes perfect. True. Well, glass blowers are notorious. They'll say, how long did it take to make that piece? An hour. And they're like, an hour? And they look at you like, like you said, they're ri you're ripping them off, or at least that's my interpretation of ripping them off. But, you know, standing an hour to an hour and a half in front of those hot ovens, you can't set it down. You can't answer the phone. You can't. It's not like painting where you're building up layers over time. Right. It's, it's a totally different beast, a different animal. And if they don't understand your medium, it, it does kind of feel like you have to give the, well, it took me 30 years to get to this point. And <laughs> That's what I was going to say. It's, it doesn't include the years of perfecting the craft. I mean... I've seen your work, Doug. It's gorgeous. I've also seen my dad's college glass work. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> you did You did glass work, Jeff. Oh, not very long. At, okay. at the, I went to Moorhead State University in Minnesota here, and the ceramics professor set up a glass studio. Okay. And I still think he didn't really know what he was doing, because it, <laughs> it was... It was rough, and nobody oh. was turning out anything. Rustic is it what was, they so say. It was, it was say. like a year of a brand-new glass furnace and equipment mm -hmm. that we built, and mm -hmm. it was— Everybody making birds. Yeah, it was pretty pitiful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, one thing I have to say, Jeff, about your sculptures and the way the balls move through the course and through the tracks, it's like an ADD person's dream come true because they can, they can completely shut out the whole world and just follow the track of what's— happening and it's like everything else just gets filtered away doesn't it yeah that's yeah. exactly it and he actually had an adhd pharmaceutical company commission a trade show piece that illustrated that exact point really yeah tell me about that um this was oh probably 15 years ago um hmm. this company called me up and said we're making this piece for this pharmaceutical we wanted to demonstrate how the add med works so mm. the top of the sculpture the sculpture was 12 or 13 feet high. It was pretty big and mm -hmm. kind of an hourglass shape. And the, the top of it was just wild, things going every which way. Chaotic. Chaotic. Mm -hmm. And the bottom part was just a smooth track that just went round and round and round. And actually, when, I, when they asked about it, I said, yeah, I can, I can do that for you. And I was building. I thought, man, this is, the bottom is actually going to look really boring. But when the thing was running with a lot of balls, it worked really Hypnotic. cool. <laughs> the okay. bottom, just the, the smooth running just calmed you down from looking at the top that was chaotic. It worked better than I thought it would. It was, gotcha. it was kind of amazing. 
it's interesting how sometimes those commissions or those those requests can send us in a direction we would have never thought to go. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but by all the times, so like the Vegas piece that Carl was talking about, mm-hmm. we had to um, do so many things out of our comfort zone mm-hmm. that we had like to what? figure it out. And like it what? was structural steel. So the way it was done is um, because of the globe shape of the sculpture. Mm-hmm. Dad's tracks were the shape, and I had to mount all the gears in this sphere inside. Mm. So it took weeks and months of figuring how to do it and drawing and sketching. And what I ended up coming up with is that we had giant angle iron pillars and then zigzagged it like, you know, old uh, steel work is riveted together, Mm. which gave us a support to branch all the supports off of that we needed. And we were originally going to weld the whole thing, but Vegas said we couldn't because we didn't have welding certificates to prove that we were structural welders. So we ended up bolting everything together, and that worked out better in the long run because we could disassemble it for powder coating and reassemble it. And we could, you know, tweak a little piece rather than cutting parts off and rewelding whole components. Mm. Well, Carl, I I think about that aspect with you is you are like a problem solver. I mean, Mm -hmm. part of part of your artwork is also like, how can I solve that problem? Yeah. Yep. I love kind of deconstructing things. I still take stuff apart in the studio. Mm-hmm. I'm perpetually four. Um, <laughs> and just to see how things work. Yeah. I, I have a son like that too. Every, I mean, we, we, the oh, most is he 41? No, he's 41. <laughs> Would you like me to adopt you, Carl? <laughs> oh, no. The more, come, the merrier. Come to the studio and see the piles of things taken apart. <laughs> you might go, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it's really nice working with Carl in the studio because okay. we do think a lot alike. You know, mm. previously, you know, I, I'd make something, you know, I'd have a a new motor mount that I came up with, a self-tensioning. I could take home to my wife, oh, look, I made this new motor mount that self-tensions. And my wife would go, oh, that's nice. <laughs> but Carl, you know, he looks at it and goes, oh, cool. But maybe if you did this, it might work a little better with that. Ah. And it's it's so cool to be able to bounce ideas off him like that. Mm-hmm. We kind of have this this David Letterman game of cool or lame. We find that the the barrier between cool and lame is like a razor's edge. Ah. So you explain something and you have this idea and this spark and you're like, is this cool or is this lame? And sometimes <laughs> it's right on the edge and you kind of have to make it to figure out. Well, who's the arbiter of, of if it's cool or lame? Is it Does it bounce back and forth between the two of you? Or, I mean, is there ever... Usually when the question is asked, we're questioning ourselves. So the other person is kind of the, the, judge. the judge. Or suggests, you know, tweaks to throw it over the fence into cool. Yes. Okay. Carl, you grew up in this business. You you went to shows with your dad. I mean, this this oh, this, yeah. this business is like it's in you, not just DNA wise, but actual like nature and nurture. I mean, talk oh, about yeah. that experience. I I remember going to um, Park Point in Duluth and camping overnight because we didn't have hotels. I remember staying in fifty dollar motel sixes, forty dollar <laughs> oh, motel. Oh no sixes. no no, Carl. No, there was a long time I wouldn't pay $50 for a hotel. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, Land of the Loon. Uh, I think I, as a, as a, a, was how old was I when I almost got killed by a bus in Uptown? Oh, yeah, you were probably about six. Yeah. Yeah. Were you guys um, on Hennepin and it rounded the corner? Yeah, and... well, actually, it, it wasn't. He remembers this Uptown. It was actually the Aquatennial show, which, because oh. as a potter, I would take on any show I could get. 
Okay. And he stepped off the curb, and my booth was on the curb, and a bus just narrowly missed him. It was oh. like, yeah. and that's scary. I I, I remember uh, going to uh, was it Powderhorn Park and like you know sleeping under the blue tent with the bungee cords, yeah. you know, yeah, under the tarp because it was all the overstock. So rustic was your upbringing. Yep. I was a feral child. Feral child. I was, I, I was, I was, I was told it's like, all right, we're here, you know. Yeah. Check back. Like there wasn't. I didn't have a watch. It's just check back, and you know, all the artists around, like you can spot an art show kid, yeah. a mile away, you know. Yeah. And they're just kind of doing their own thing, and you just know that he belongs to that booth or over there. You don't know his name or maybe even his parents' name, and the weird irony here is that. The very first show I did was... Um, You're saying in, that you uh, exhibited your workout? Yep. The okay. very first show I did was uh, Howard Allen in the Kansas City Light and Power District. Okay. And just across from me in a, in a couple booths down was um, a younger artist and his wife. And his son was the, the quintessential age, I remember, of like four to six at an art show. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was just me. He was, you know, mm-hmm. everything he was doing and how he was running around the art show. It was exactly like I remember growing up. Mm. Isn't that? Is it a weird experience to to see yourself in that? You know what I mean from a different vantage point to to, to kind mm-hmm. of know what that kid is going through. It really is. It actually took me into college to realize, or, you know, maybe started in high school, but definitely cemented in college, just how different my life was. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up as an art carny and not mm-hmm. the guy from the honeymooners. Mm-hmm. Um, in that I got taken out of school a lot to travel. My teachers were very supportive of, you know, as long as I got the homework done, yeah, go to DC, go to Florida, go to Phoenix, go to, you know, there's wherever. an aspect of learning that happens on the road that you just can't get in a classroom. So I mm-hmm. mean it it is cool that when schools allow that. For their kid, yep. for kids, we would hit students. up museums and things like that while we were out. And was in high school and college. I started realizing just how truly unique my upbringing was. Our daughter has has recently communicated that back to us. Uh, she's twenty six and she's masters in psychology. And you know she's done a lot of introspection on her life. And she's like, I really didn't realize exactly what you're saying. I really didn't realize in the moment that. People didn't experience the kind of upbringing that she did, that, you know, she expected her friends to kind of, you know, to kind of have the same reality, but they just didn't. There's a type of introspection that's needed. And, you know, as growing up, your world is your world. You think everybody's like that. You think everybody thinks like you, Mm. you know, dad and I thinking alike is something that I've only found one or two other people than him that has even remotely come close to thinking like me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, growing up, I thought everybody did. Mm-hmm. Was that always a smooth kind of interaction? Or if you guys thought alike, was there <laughs> no. butting of heads in those no. formative well, years? Well, the way I think of it is uh, Carl is very opinionated and I'm right. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's kind of like the Orange County Choppers guys. Okay. But our arguments aren't as bad and we don't throw chairs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So if you're always uh, right, Jeff, I mean, how does that present itself? I mean, are there... (laughs) Usually with him being wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, do you just throw your arms up, Carl, and kind of say, okay, I mean, whatever, I'm not going to win this fight? Um, 
that's what happened over COVID. I finally learned that. Okay. <laughs> well, it, it's working in the same studio. It's there's kind of lines that I have to try and follow in my head, whether mm-hmm. I'm being a dad or a teacher mm-hmm. or and a know-it-all. Sometimes, yeah, a know-it-all. Uh, and sometimes the dad thing gets in the way of the teacher. Uh, so mm-hmm. it, I have to, sometimes I just have to back off and say, okay, he's doing it his way. Mm-hmm. Let it go. It's it's a lesson for me as well, trying to figure well, out how to do that. I'm 53 and I'm in that that spot in life where you know, for a number of years, my dad and I have been on this kind of level where we're kind of more peers than father son. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And my son is in his 20s and I'm kind of seeing myself kind of shift into that role, too. I still feel like I'm the dad, of course. Mm-hmm. But there does come that leveling off period where, OK, Carl is you said you're 41, right? Mm-hmm. You're an adult. You've had life experiences and there can be things that you bring to the conversation where you might be right over what maybe your dad might think. Well, and the thing is, is it doesn't matter how old I am. Mm-hmm. I will always be blamed as the son for misplacing the drill bit or not putting the screwdriver away, <laughs> even though he has gotten progressively older over the years and his memory isn't as sharp. I've noticed that we've switched and who's not putting stuff away. And now here's the kicker. My son, who is eight, and my nephew, who's five, come and visit, and they just move everything. And are they as creative as you guys? I mean, are they kind of are they playing with things, making things oh, yeah. out they of have, materials? They've discovered the miracle of hot glue. Yeah. We have things <laughs> hot glued together that you cannot imagine. Zombie weapons and wow. sculptures and So this intergenerational thing, it sounds like it's gonna it's gonna keep on going for a while. It's not just yeah. gonna end with the two of you. Yeah, Carl's son James, he's a very creative kid. Mm-hmm. He lives outside of town, You're not in town here, he's about an hour away. So he doesn't get as much studio time. Evander, the, um, my daughter's son, she's actually mm-hmm. adopted. He's not actually a genetic kid, but he is incredibly talented artistic-wise, in too. Everything. And he spends a lot of time mm-hmm. in the studio. And they're just goofing around. And mm-hmm. I was kind of raised that way. My dad was actually a, a diesel mechanic, and he let us use tools and stuff. And for the life of me, I'm not sure why he did, because he lost a lot of tools over the years just in the backyard <laughs> somewhere. Not me. It's yeah. <laughs> not Carl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, so I, I try and just let them go. I mean, I keep an eye on them so they're not using, you know, radial arm saws and things like that. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, give them a hot glue gun and people are like, oh, my gosh, you could get burned. He said, well, yeah, you could. And he did. And he won't anymore. <laughs> so the irony is, is that. He lets them get away with things I would have been murdered for. Yep. Okay. True. Well, that Go is grandpa. kind of the nature of the beast. The grandchild does get away with things that the, the kid doesn't. I mean, yeah, the snack drawer is always fully stocked. Yeah. So, Fun um, fact, artists yeah. if the snacks are for the studio, they are a business expense. <laughs> True story. <laughs> I, uh, do you guys remember the Munns? Uh, Vicki and Lance Munn from years ago, furniture makers from Indiana. Because Lance made wine shelves, Vicky was adamant about the fact, because she was the, the business side of their, their business, that the wine could be a tax write-off deduction because they made wine shelves and they needed the wine to sh- right. in the booth to show the wine shelves. So, Perfect. You, know, and you can't have <laughs> old, crusty labels, so you got to get new ones. That's right. So, yeah, you have it. to dispose of the wine somehow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, can, I can see that, yeah. 
Yeah. Hey, Dad, we should start making wine racks. Yeah, I know. (laughs) You could make something, Carl, that really cool to pour a shot of whiskey. Maybe that'd be better. Have you seen that there is one of those that does a bottle of wine? Mm. Like you you pull a lever and it uncorks, pours, and puts back in one go. Oh, cool. Really? A a sculpture artist does this? Is this what you're talking about? Or is this just a... YouTube. I don't YouTube. know if it was an engineer or an artist, but it was beautifully done in like stainless steel and brass. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about like the different generation. I mean, you guys have acknowledged that you have these similarities about how you think and that sort of thing. But how is it kind of a, a different flair in the sense of, you know, being at different times in history, different things in our lives that influence our upbringing and that sort of thing? Hmm. Well, it's been interesting watching it from when I was a kid because as, you know, I've only been doing shows now for 12 years, which isn't that long, not compared to dad, but I still remember, you know, emptying the dining room and taking art off the wall so that we could project slides Mm. on the white wall so he could figure out slides for shows and things like that. Right. Um, The old process like that. And um, things I've noticed about as far as time going on is just how the weather and climate change have affected shows more. And I don't know if that's necessarily in my head or it's social media with things like um, the independent artist podcasts and mm-hmm. Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Because as a kid growing up, I remember one show that was a catastrophic storm that just left easy ups like in the wake after everybody was done. You, right. you have a poor memory, but, Carl. <laughs> I just remember that, that that one show in particular. But what I mean, though, is that I remember big storms, but the kind that just destroy tents and booths. I only remember one or two. But now with social media, I see them a lot more. True. But I also seems like I'm getting more rain, you know, and more high heat than when I was a kid. Right. I mean, does this this model of doing shows... You know, this has been like kind of your your dad's sole way of meeting collectors and having his work go into people's homes. But now with the Internet and social media and all that kind of stuff, do you feel like you have other options, Carl, for how you can connect with collectors to do your to sell your work? No, actually, I I don't. Shows, I think, are still kind of the best venue for that. Mm. Um, I have, you know, talking to patrons at art shows and things. I explain it in that, you know, an arts festival is kind of like a museum, but everybody's still alive. It's all for sale. Whereas a gallery, you get to buy the art, but you don't get to take a piece of the artist home. I mean, when I look at my walls and see the artwork I've purchased at arts festivals or from friends or traded for, you know, I'm bringing a piece of that artist home with me and the story and their personality and talking to them. And I think that's a substantial part of of the art experience, you know, mm-hmm. whereas you go to a gallery, you're interacting with somebody who third person who's explaining what you mean. Mm-hmm. Carl and I also mm-hmm. are very fortunate in that we don't have a, much competition for what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's not someone else that, on the art first circuit at all that does things with rolling balls or making gears mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people need to buy it, they come to us. I mean, there's kinetic work out there, but it's of a different, completely different, and, and it's a handful. It's definitely not like right. you're competing against uh, 150 or 200 other painters right. for that one of 12 spots in a show. Yeah, and, and we, everything we make generally sells at shows. 
Um, mm-hmm. So we haven't needed to follow galleries. I've, I've done a couple of galleries over the years for short periods of time, and it always ends up be more of a headache than anything trying to supply a gallery while their busy show season was my busy show season, and I couldn't keep them supplied when they needed it. And even if I could, I'd be getting 50% of what I could at the show. So yeah, it's like you're cutting yourself off at the knees at that point. Yeah. Well, yeah. and this growing up in this business has been really interesting because, you know, dad started doing functional pottery. It was plate settings and coffee mugs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've seen both ends of the spectrum from small local shows up to the, the A-list shows mm-hmm. and production stuff where you're competing against everybody else with a coffee mug. Mm-hmm. You know, dad's way of giving him a raise wasn't that he could raise the prices for a coffee mug, it's that he had to make more coffee mugs per hour. That's a grind that is impossible to to feel fulfilled. It's like being on that treadmill that we all complain about. Yeah. Well, do you even timed it? How long did it take you to make a mug or a bowl? What was it down to well, <laughs> from manufacturing to out of the kiln? Um, three minutes for each mm-hmm. mug. It came down mm-hmm. to it. You just kept finding ways to do it quicker. But like you said, it, it eventually sucks your soul out. And mm-hmm. I wasn't it able can. to throw a different shape mug, not without mm-hmm. a lot of work. And it's one of the reasons that I made the jump. And when I started doing the sculptures, I thought I could go two different ways with this. I could make something and get really good at it and make it faster again with these mm-hmm. sculptures. Or I could make every one one of a kind. And I chose mm-hmm. the latter just because it wasn't sucking my soul out. It's been a lot more fun. Plus, and your well, wife told you to do it that way, remember? I mean, didn't, yeah, didn't yeah. she say, look, uh, you're making all these pieces for fun. There's a market for this. Why don't you get out well, there and sell it? Yeah. <laughs> he did that with pottery, too, though. Okay. Is there was a time period when I was in junior high, I think it was early junior high, where he was doing raku pottery and everything was one of a kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in the my short raku life actually went really well. It sold really well. but People would order a piece and it was fragile ship it stuff. and it was really fragile and it'd break. And they'd say, okay, I want one just like it. And it's like, can't do that. That ain't happening. <laughs> yeah. And no. I, I finally, I was so tired of shipping things out and sitting with a lump in my stomach until I heard it made it. That I said, I can't do this anymore. So I mm-hmm. gave that up. Jeff, your booth, it's a spectacle. Do you ever run into the challenge that your neighbor at the show looks at you and says, oh, I'm next to this guy. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's, it's something that I'm, I'm trying to be very conscious of. I try mm. and be the best neighbor I can be. Okay. I, I set up my booth so people aren't standing in front of other people's booths. You um, try to always ask for a corner if possible. That way you have one neighbor instead of wedging between mm. you know two booths. Yeah, and that way I can direct people into the opening rather than – because it, it is, it's, it's, it's kind of a madhouse. One time I was at Fort Worth and Chris Dahlquist, the photographer, was setting up next to me. And, and she, she told me this the next day that she said she saw me unpacking. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm next to that marble guy. Oh. <laughs> and she came over to me after the first day and said, you know, I was really worried about this, but this has been great. You suck up all the children and the stupid people. <laughs> stupid people. <laughs> yeah. And, and I do. It, it's, it's, it's just one of the services I provide. Uh, she said that weekend was really packed, and her friends who were in other booths were having people knock things over, and that she couldn't talk to people because you get the, oh, gosh, you make these pictures uh. kind of people in. And she said, 
I got to talk to real customers and I didn't have any damage because the stupid people and the kids would just see your booth and go over there. And then it would leave me to be really nice. But as kind of <laughs> so, like a side benefit for you, I know that you're really intrigued by people. I mean, you like to study people and their personality quirks kind of, they delight you. I mean, you tell plenty of stories about in, you encounter with people in your booth. I mean, it's true. Is, is your work is is a good segue for that people watching. Oh, it, it's, it's amazing. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I will always do shows. Um, when people see my booth, they think, oh, my gosh, how can you take this? And it's a blast if you let it be a blast. I have to sit in my chair at the booth because people can't find me because I will generally have 10 to 20 people in my booth mm. all the time. So they don't know who the artist mm -hmm. is. Uh, in fact, I've, I've been working on a sculpture with the pliers and some guy behind me says, are you supposed to be doing that? Because <laughs> <laughs> he just assumed I was some guy in the crowd with <laughs> the pliers. Like you're damaging the artist's work know. or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it's, um, I love seeing how people's minds mm. work. And it took me a while in making what I do to actually realize why I do what I do. I'm really interested in systems. And it's not just mechanical systems. It's the systems and how people think and how they act. And my sculptures have a way of disarming people. And the real them come out and things just fall out of their mouths sometimes, which is, I find, absolutely hilarious. Okay. Because a lot of times it's not until after they've walked away that I realize what they said. And it's like, what? Like maybe it might be something that could be taken offensively or taken the wrong way, but they just, they just almost like a kid, they are filterless. It just, whatever they see comes out of their mouth. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that, that, is, that is it. And I never really have any negative mm -hmm. things that right. people mean. Every now and then, but you know, that's not my buyer. Yeah. I don't care. And they've got other problems. If they can't just come to a show right. and just have fun. Eh, that, that, well, I had the problem. pleasure of being Carl's neighbor, Carl at, at Jazz Fest. We were next to each other. And your mm -hmm. collector has, I think, almost a different kind of intent or reaction to your work. It's a little more thought-provoking, would you say? It's Yeah. Yeah. It, Dad's is more mm. active. Mine's more passive. The one problem we have, ha I have had is that with his being so active, I have a harder time getting customers over the threshold to open their wallets. Dad's is more active and engaging, so there's more adrenaline, okay. more excitement in the purchasing. Where mine, you know, you have to get closer and study the movement and how things are laid out and done. So I have a harder time making mm. sales. Your work has an intellectual quality to it. Um, I'm thinking like the piece of where it was, and this might have been from a long time ago. This wasn't at the last show. But it was the 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 speed sign that has a cutout and it has mm -hmm. gears moving, and then you've got the car and the houses. There, it's like basically like you're on this treadmill traveling around across country, and you watch the motion, yep. and you can really feel the repetitiveness, and it makes you go internal. And then, like with Jeff, the ball goes down. And you're like, is it going to make the jump? Oh, it made the jump, and it's spinning here, and it's down, and it's up, and oh, and it's doing that. You know what I mean? There's like this element exactly. of surprise with with what you're doing, Jeff. Yeah, and that's that's really in a nutshell of the difference in our work. Once we did um, the sculpture show in Loveland, Colorado. Okay. And 
the way the tent was done is, um, you know, it's a sculpture show. So everybody oh. has pedestals except for dad and I. We have walls. Wall sculpture, yeah. So the way the, the tent was done is it had 10-foot booths in the middle and 10-foot booths on the aisles, on the, okay. against the walls. So, you know, we had to fill us both directions. So we each got a 10 by 10, and then we split it and made it into a, a 5 by 20. So he mm. faced one aisle, and I faced the other. And there was one 10 by 10 on the end of the row next to us. So they would go down the entire length of the show, see my dad's marble mm. work, go to the booth next to us, around the corner, and see my work. And they thought mine was the backside of his sculpture, making them work oh, my, all weekend. It's like looking inside the brain, <laughs> the inner gears of the brain. How yeah, it's working. yeah. yeah. And, and for yeah. the life of me, I don't know how they figured I was going to get in their walls and put Carl's thing inside the wall or to make my sculpture work. the fact that the wall was a one pro panel thick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because we had a whole storeroom in there. Yeah, those those are the kind of goofy things we run into all the time. Yeah, but do you do you? I mean, other other than that, do you have any other experiences? Maybe like, well, people will confuse you know they'd see the last name they see kinetic sculpture but then they expect oh, all the time it to be one or the other oh, and yeah. it's yeah that happens all the time i get people who come to my booth and say oh i saw your work last year well i wasn't mm-hmm. there last year or you know oh your work's changed <laughs> um or i get a lot of people looking at a business card and looking at my sign and looking at a business card and looking at my sign like all kinds of that stuff we find that we can't be next to each other at a show because they think we're the same mm-hmm. artist. We have to have distance as the patrons go. So like Fort Worth, we can be back mm-hmm. to back, but we can't be next mm-hmm. to each other. You know, they have to be able to go down one block and up the other or around the corner mm-hmm. or something. Just yeah. enough space get a lot so of, they can forget. I get a lot of, oh, I was just down at your brother's booth. Brother. I'm like, well, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although at Jazz Fest, one person did come up and say, I was just at your grandson's booth. It's like, ouch, oh, ouch. ouch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm never going to let you forget that one. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about how, you know, you guys find yourself having a lot of things in common. What are some of the major differences between father and son that, you know, that are 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 quite different in your personality. Well, I'm better looking. Ooh, ow, 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 <laughs> of course, ow. there you go. <laughs> you notice I didn't even argue the point? <laughs> no, I was like, I'll give yeah, it to you, him. You got, got it. He's I don't care. It doesn't really matter to me anymore. <laughs> it never mattered to you. You're past a certain point, and you're like, who cares? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've heard the expression, um, beauty fades, but stupid is forever. Is yep, that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not saying in your case, Carl, that's, that there's no stupidity there, but I think uh, one of the ways that we our artwork does differ is mine is more intuitive. Each piece mm-hmm. is individual and I just build it. It would actually be harder to duplicate them. And his are much more thought out. Each part has to be figured out with gear ratios clearances um it's harder to build it organically yeah Um, you know that's one thing i renee and i were talking about this after the show carl you know we we spent a long weekend with you and admiring your work and my first impression was that your pieces were organic that the gears were found objects that you pieced together and renee said to me no 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 those those are all designed and he laser cuts them and 
and different sizes and this and that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, talk on that, the, the amount of planning and the construction that goes into your pieces. Well, I got my first truck at 16, and that was about the time that Dad started incorporating some of the found metal colored panels into his art and stuff. So we frequented the scrapyard, and I started bringing stuff home, pulleys and gears and things like that. And mm-hmm. I'll be honest, he yelled at me for bringing a lot of stuff home, but he never yelled at me for bringing those things home. Mm-hmm. And they line his retaining wall in the in the garden outside okay. our old studio by his house. Yeah. And it's a lot of the influence for the patterns and things like that and the steam shows I go to. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is that anything I find... You know, it's going to be two inches of cast iron. It's going to be really heavy. And something coming out of a transmission of a combine isn't going to work with something out of a printing press. They all Mm -hmm. have different teeth and different sizes. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, as far as I'm concerned, one of a kind. You know, a Mm -hmm. a 1920 printing press that's being scrapped at our scrapyard, I'm never going to see that part again. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to get into something like a tractor or a combine, that's a lot of work to pull apart transmissions and differentials and, you know, big, rusty, heavy stuff. So with my master's degree in historical archaeology, I knew my way around uh, archives and libraries in digital uh, documents. So I followed the train of thought and manufacturing backwards. So a company that has a gear or a pulley or something with a, with a design, you know, they're getting it from a machinist who is getting it from a foundry, who gets it from a pattern maker, who gets it from a draftsman. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I followed the train back until I found all the old drafting manuals for how this equipment was drawn. Uh-huh. And that's how I learned to do the, the teeth shapes. And I learned how to do the spoke patterns. And all the spokes are shaped for different reasons. It took older, in the old times, it took better, foundries to make straight spokes than curved spokes and some were decorative because they were on things that were seen like coffee grinders at general stores and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff so i but had then to you start could adjust them. the scale so you can go off mm-hmm. the the design of what was actual and and real and model it after that but then adjust the scale to what you want it to be in your pieces exactly by making them myself i'm able to I do the size, I can do the spoke pattern, I can do the number of spokes, I can scale it up or down, I can flip patterns left and right. I'm not solely limited by what I have. It takes a fair amount of time to lay out a new gear design or pattern, but then it's like having a photograph negative. You know, I can mm-hmm. I can make another copy. And mm-hmm. early on my sculptures, all the gears were one one piece. It was a layer. And then I realized that if I stacked two layers, I could mimic the relief that they saw in the casting process. Mm-hmm. So everybody thinks that they're all old. And it's actually one of the things I fight is because I think a lot of people just write off that I'm just throwing old things together. Right. Like it's kind of accidental or random that it's a there is a almost. lot of design and planning involved in in executing the work. Yeah. And when I first started, I was using a lot of found metal um, in my backgrounds like dad does. And my first my first year or two out, like they looked a lot like his as far as the, the structure and the shapes and the colors in the backgrounds mm-hmm. with his backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I kept getting more solid and it was harder to get bigger pieces. And I had a couple pieces that mm-hmm. kind of came out like a patchwork quilt um, with all these colors, mm-hmm. you know, riveted and fastened together and it was really chaotic and i so i had been toying around with another idea of adding vintage graphics 
So that's when I started doing um, my new work. That's the, the the newer style that has the the graphics and the patinas and things like that. And finding the graphics to go with the sculpture is actually the hardest part for me because I can't just throw in any old picture or any old drawing. It has to be something mm-hmm. that ties into the piece. Something you said back a little bit there that sparked something in me is how did you develop both your personality and your direction as an artist out from under this big presence of your father? Yeah, um, it's something I still actually struggle with. I mean, the way I came up with my art is I was accepted to a PhD program and the downturn of 08 had happened and I didn't want to go take on seven more years of debt to not know what was going to happen or what I would have for an academic job and things like that. And so I chose to go into the family business of being an artist. Um, Mm -hmm. When I switched from art to anthropology and archaeology, it was actually my dad who, you know, I couldn't decide between the two. I loved both of them. And he said, do the archaeology. You can always do the art. So he was Mm -hmm. right. And I came back to that, but I didn't know what my body of work would look like. You know, mm-hmm. I I chose not to go into the rolling ball stuff because I didn't want to split the kitty, if you will. That was his thing. Yeah. But just to see, like, well, what's me? And uh, just a side comment, he's like, you know, you can make art out of gears. And it was like, bam, that was it. So mm-hmm. I still struggle with that. I still think that, like, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have a clue what my artwork would be. Well, I think about being a dad to kids and being an artist. One of the things I've always wanted to give them is the space to be creative, the space to be who they are. As artists, we are such a unique group that we're not so rigid about societal norms or like what is expected of people. And so I felt like that was something I had an intention on on my kids. Did you feel like that you got that also from your dad, that he gave you the space to be creative, the space to be yourself? I always had room to be creative. I mean, I never thought about being creative. It just happened. I just, I drew, I just did this. I just thought about that. It was nice not to have any of those kind of limits, but Mm -hmm. with that, it's also, you know, how do you express that? How do you hone it? How do you focus it? And that that sort of thing. That's something I still struggle with is I still try Mm -hmm. figuring out like, you know, what direction to take things. You know, when my Mm -hmm. early work looked a lot like his, in some of the compositions and colors, it's because we liked the same shapes. We liked the same colors. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until, you know, my work was changing into what you see now that I was able to look back and go, oh, I definitely see those influences. And, and Jeff, how about you from that other vantage point of, you know, watching your son step into this field, step into this role, and now you kind of have this this pure relationship. Talk about that whole experience. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's been really interesting to watch over the years. You know, like Carl started out like when he was just a little kid. Mm-hmm. Our pottery that we had was in the basement of our house, so it was well, I just really remarkable. Made castles and dragons, and yeah, it was mm-hmm. really remarkable having a studio in the house, and then mm-hmm. he could just go downstairs and make something out of clay, and he did. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the mm-hmm. downside is most parents have a little portfolio of pictures their kid took. We've got boxes of stuff our right. kids made because it's three dimensional. Mm-hmm. Um, right. <laughs> but as a adult and having your son working in it, being an art fair artist has amazing advantages. It really mm-hmm. does. 
Yeah. It does have down times and tough times because it's mm-hmm. just the nature of the Unpredictability and all that kind of stuff. Right, right. And mm-hmm. you never know if that next show is going to be fabulous or it's going to be rained out. Mm-hmm. We were just at, both of us were just at Reston a couple of weeks ago, and it was awful. The show was awful for everybody that I talked to. And it was okay. mainly because of the debt ceiling was coming up, and nobody knew where that was going to go. And um, yeah. artists are held hostage to that stuff. And you don't always know ahead of time what's going to happen. We're kind of the front lines in that regard. Right. What, what I always thought is, you know, people have to be feeling good to buy art. Yeah. And if they're nervous, they're not going to buy art. So, Jeff, when you encouraged him to, to pursue the anthropology, when he was kind of like, should I do art? Should I do anthropology? Was part of you kind of feeling like, well, I'd be really a proud dad if he followed in my footsteps, but maybe I should push him to the other love to see if he comes back to it, if that's really where he he naturally gravitates. Well, I, I think, you know, I didn't even think about it that way. I thought mm-hmm. it more about him finding his his way, period. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Archaeology was him. Oh, my gosh. That he, yeah. Doing the digs and examining artifacts and it, it still happens all the time with him, even unofficially. I mean, he, he's always looking at the ground. And if there's mm-hmm. a, a square nail someplace, he's he's got it and it's in a box at home now. It's like um, he found a treasure or something. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> they're, they're artifacts of some kind. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, it doesn't pay very well. And, you know, mm-hmm. after he had his master's and he had accepted the Ph.D. program, you know, he just really looked at it analytically, which I was quite proud of him to do and say, you know, this is seven more years. And if I get out, if I can even find a job, it's not going to pay anything. So that's when he, you know, he said, well, I'm going to try the art thing for a while. I can always go back to the PhD thing. So it was, it was nice that he could do that. I think that is one of the biggest gifts that being an artist has done for me is that, that feeling of we can evolve. We can change courses. We have what's in here up up in our brains, the ability to adapt and to create. And that's the skill, not necessarily the what are we going to sell, but the, you know, how are we going to navigate through this crazy life? You know, right. Well, right. A big part for me was that, you know, I started as a mechanical engineering student. I went on to become mm-hmm. an art student where I got a minor and I went into archaeology and for a while I was like, well, what connects all those things? It seems really random. Mm, and it, and I right. realized it was creative problem solving and out-of-the-box thinking. That as an engineer, yeah. you're given a problem and you have to figure out how to, to solve it. As an artist, you have an idea and you have to figure out how to create it and bring it into this world. And as an ar- archaeologist, you're given pieces of a puzzle and not even a whole picture. And you have to say, what does this mean? And you have mm-hmm. to put together the puzzle. And I see, you know, all three of those really mesh in my artwork and influence all of that, the engineering, the history, and the anthropology. You know, my artwork is filled with artifacts, you know, whether it's badges off of old motors or the bits and bobs of vintage hardware I squirrel away because the old stuff looks different than anything I can buy now. And as the archaeologist, I have to say it's really hard for him to put those in the artwork so it goes away. Someone else buys it. Like, <laughs> Those are the things he wants to like, hold on oh, to. They, they but, have to be worthy. It has, it has to be really worthy for the piece for that 
old motor badge to go in there because it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully a, a few extra zeros go onto the piece to make it a little easier yeah. To, yeah. to ease the yeah. pain. Uh, yeah, my dad and I have this thing where I, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a – a saver and a hoarder, whereas that's how he started in his artwork back, you know, when we okay. were doing this, you know, 30 years ago. But he has honed his craft to know what he needs and what he has. So he's getting rid of all this extra stuff that he doesn't need. And I'm kind of like, no, 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 I might need that still. The case in point right. is like all of the, the switches on my artwork, they're all uh -huh. Korean War surplus. We found uh, a salvage... Uh, Surplus. A surplus store in Colorado, and they had an entire bin. The guy's father or grandfather had started it. The original contents came from surplus auctions from the military. So this entire mm -hmm. bin was full of, like, Vietnam, Korean War surplus toggle switches. And wow. I bought all of them. I, I just plunked the whole bin down and said, how much for all of them? You were like, sound like a big roller walking yeah. in. Well, right? when they were marked 50 cents <laughs> a piece and I buy all like 400 of them uh -huh. or a thousand or whatever it was. Because they'll <laughs> never find them again. Yeah. yeah. But the weird thing is, is that about two weeks before this happened, my father decided that, you know, he had this bin of the labels for toggle switches that say on off. That really? he had founded a surplus store probably when I was in elementary school, maybe junior high, and he had never used one ever in a sculpture. So he dumped them out into the recycling, and I went through and says, no, we can't get rid of these. And I picked every last one out to then two weeks later get an entire bin of switches that need those but don't have them. So all of the on-off switches on my sculptures are from that surplus scrap. And the things my dad tried throwing away. It's the synchronicity of the, the puzzle pieces all coming together at different times. It's like it's like the Holy Grail or something that, Jeff, you had the power all along <laughs> yeah. waiting for, yeah. for Carl to have them. <laughs> but yeah, it also has developed into kind of this game where he'll come to me and be like, do we still have XYZ? And I'll be, you mean XYZ, the thing you tried throwing away six months ago that I went and hit over in that corner when you weren't looking? It's over there behind that stuff. And he never lets me forget. <laughs> it's a balancing well, act. He's he's in the getting rid of phase of his life, and I'm still in the I don't know what I need yet phase, so hold on to everything. Absolutely. You so it, know it's it going to come in handy well. someday. <laughs> it does balance well. Yeah. Okay. So, well, before we wrap up this talk, anybody who knows you knows that you guys have got the best stories from the road. So, Jeff, can you start off and tell us some of your favorite stories? I've had a number of really amazing people I've met mm -hmm. and experiences early on in my career. I, I sold a rather large piece, probably five feet square, mm. uh, to a guy. So, can you bring it to my office? And he invented the Happy Meal. Yeah, oh. yeah, he's the guy who invented the Happy really? Meal, by the way. It was kind of, yeah. That wasn't um, Ronald McDonald who did that? <laughs> no, it was not. No, it was, it was his advertising company. Yeah. So I brought it up to his office where he was going to put it. Okay. And he's looking around. And the office was just filled with really expensive art. Oh. And he's talking to his secretary. Where are we going to put it? He said, well, we could take the Warhol down. So I actually got to take down a four-foot-wide Andy Warhol oh. and hang my sculpture there instead. That's was, when you know you've arrived, right? <laughs> yeah. Luckily, my wife was there at the time to see it because she wouldn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> She'd be like, yeah, right, Jeff, you're making up stories again. <laughs> yeah. Another time, 
Uh, well, this happened last fall. Carl and I were at Plaza, sure. and this guy who liked both of our work bought one of my pieces. And we had to install it, you know, had to install the- it because it was a large piece. So we brought it to his house, had to go in through his garage to get his house. And there was a 56 pink T-Bird in his garage and kind of a car elevator thing. Okay. And Carl mentioned that Carl, oh, that's a nice car. And the guy said, that used to be Marilyn Monroe's car. It's like, You're what? Really? He said, can we get a picture of it? So, yeah. so he backs it out and we take pictures with it. And then he hands me the keys. Really? He says, take it for you a guys spin? Want to take it for a drive? So <laughs> yep. we got to drive Marilyn Monroe's car. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah. The one that sticks out for me is right when my work changed from the very colorful stuff that was more reminiscent of my dad's work to the style I have now, just as I had transitioned, we did a tour for a group. Yeah. One of those uh, service groups, you know, uh, Rotary and Lions and those kind of groups. Mm-hmm. And I had just finished this piece. I had only made a few in this style. It was the first one of this model. So the tour went through. It was at like seven in the morning. It was the the sunrise group before, you know, everybody had to be at work. And the one guy, he, he showed up about five minutes late after everybody else had been starting on the tour. Okay. And everybody left. And he just said, I'd like to buy that piece. And dad and I were just shocked because we don't ever expect anybody to buy our stuff locally. Okay. We know we have an expensive price point. Mm -hmm. And he came back the next week to pay for it. And he has this envelope. And he says, like, well, I was thinking this is kind of an old-timey artwork. So I'd pay you in an old-timey way. Okay. And he starts unwrapping this envelope, and I'm like, is this cash? Like, like I've seen cash. Cash is old-timey. It's not that old-timey, but... <laughs> yeah, and what he had was four one-ounce gold coins. Okay. That were within... The, the spot price at gold at that time was within about $50 of the price of the sculpture. Okay. So, he, he in front of my father, he paid for his sculpture with these four one-ounce South African cougarons. And did you bite the coin to see if it was authentic? How did you know he wasn't, like, pulling you a line or something? I should have. But it was just amazing to hold these four coins in my hand that were so heavy. And they, like, you know, they were worth more than my truck. <laughs> it was just so surreal. I that that next spring, I made a, a a sign for my booth that was Visa, Mastercard, Discover, Cougaron. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up, you know, I ended up cashing them in because I was just like, you know, if these were if this was a credit card slip, my bills would be paid. So I ended up doing all that. But the story is just amazing. I don't know, you know. Yeah. I remember as soon as he left, I just looked at me and went. Nobody's ever paid me in gold. Yeah, right. It's like that MasterCard commercial from years ago where they say, you know, the the experience priceless it's or whatever. Priceless. Remember when they it, were talking yeah. about priceless? It's like getting the gold coins was priceless. <laughs> yep. So yeah. Right. So you mentioned that um, that local tour. Don't you guys have something coming up here? Some project from Fergus Falls that you wanted to talk about? Dad and I just found out that we each got one of the two major projects for our local city of Fergus Falls riverfront development. Really? Is it a collaboration or two separate projects? No, we each pitched an idea for one of the two locations. I took one location, he took the other. Mm -hmm. The funding is all done through the McKnight Foundation and other things. No, 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 no. no. The funding is all done through the National Institute of NEA Mm. and then a local, um, the Dell Trust matched it so it was yeah. a, a nice size 
sculptures, two big ones. And so. it has wow. to be uh, local Minnesota artists. So awesome. m- mine's going to be about like 20 feet tall, kinetic with butterflies spinning on stained glass that with the trails spinning. And then dads are going to be life-size bison that the wind make rock back and forth like they're running. Did you have to present a design that they chose or did they choose you and then you were able to design what you wanted? It was a request for qualifications, Mm -hmm. but it was worded like it was a request for proposals as well. Mm -hmm. So we kind of mashed them in together. Okay. So you did present them with what your idea would be and they were selecting based on what you were going to design for them. Right. We, and we did some small maquettes, working maquettes, Mm -hmm. because in order to pitch something like this, we had to make sure it worked mm-hmm. since it was actually a moving piece. So we did some small maquettes and that way we were able to video it and show them what it would look like. And I think that helped. What is Fergus Falls like, actually? I've, I've been wondering, I hear a lot about Fergus Falls. I know there's a number of artists up that way. Is it a real small community? Is it progressive? It's uh, about just over 14,000 people. Okay. But what makes it really amazing is it has a legacy of the arts that date back to a, a local artist uh, named Charlie Beck. They're celebrating a, a, the anniversary of his 100th birthday this year. Mm. And he was a local sign painter that did carving and woodblock prints and everything and is fairly well rep- represented in the Midwest in museums and galleries and things like that. Okay. Uh, and he taught at the community college and really instilled his passion for art and a lot of locals. So we have some amazing painters and the art has just kind of been growing around that over and over and over. So now we have the Lake Region Arts Council, Mm -hmm. which does um, gallery shows and grant funding for people in this part of the state. And we have a branch of Springboard for the Arts, which is a nonprofit out of St. Paul Mm -hmm. that brings in uh, residency and does funding and helps with that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, We have the Cadets Gallery. We have a Playhouse. So there's a lot of art, and it just keeps getting condensed here. I'd say we probably have one of the better art scenes outside of Minneapolis and Duluth in the state. I mean, that community is so small to have such a a huge arts representation and focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, they've done funding to find out how much money the arts contribute to the state and to the region, both through organizations like the theaters and the galleries, and also the private artists. It was about a two-year study. And even prior to those studies, I had found that uh, I had heard a study come out, must have been probably about eight years ago, that Minnesota is the second best state in the country to be an artist in after New York. Interesting. And there's also things like the McKnight Foundation, and there, uh, Minnesota also has the Legacy Amendment and Percent for the Arts. So like any state or federal project in the state of Minnesota, a certain percentage of the budget has to go to the arts. So there is artwork at rest stops and mm-hmm. all kinds of things like that. Mm. Jeff, is this stuff that you've known about uh, over the years, or is Carl like bringing this information to you you know what i mean is this something he no finds it, out? it and wasn't always that way in fergus i mean a, a lot of it had to do with uh charlie beck mm-hmm. of course or charles beck i guess anyway i, I knew mm-hmm. him and we talked and we were friends i was at a, a show in kansas city and someone asked oh my gosh you're from fergus falls network charles beck is from do you know charles I said, 
Charlie? Yeah, I know Charlie. <laughs> oh my gosh, you call him Charlie? Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> it's <just> like, yeah. <laughs> but but anyway, it it a lot of arts have spun off due to him, okay. and also some other people who moved to Fergus probably thirty years ago. Thirty years ago, okay. kind of thing. And it's just uh, it's it's a beautiful county. Nice. Minnesota has over um, ten eleven thousand lakes, but over eleven thousand lakes. Mm-hmm. And Otter our Hill county, county has 1,053. Oh. We have more lakes in our county than any other county in the continuous 48 states. And the whole western fifth of our county has zero lakes because of the glaciers. Okay, so Minnesota was always called the land of 10,000 lakes. How did they get an extra thousand? <laughs> when did that come up? Because they never counted very well. <laughs> okay. it, it was just rough. Somebody counted and the exact number just doesn't roll off the tongue very well. So. And it was already on the license plate. <laughs> and that was back in the analog days where someone had to drive around and count a lake. Did we count that one? Oh, I think so. Said, Don't count that one Actually, again. that yeah. was 1,000 extra lakes you missed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why Will is out on the lake right now, probably. Either that or um, he's sweating his pants off trying to get uh, one more painting ready to go to Old Town. So, uh, Oh, that's right. You oh, they're to Old Town. We yeah. got Old Town. Yeah. So. Anyway, that's such a great neighborhood. Yeah. You guys are amazing. This has been a great talk, and I really enjoy finding out the nuances, the differences between the two of you, but then also kind of the similarities. And it, it's just been a really great conversation. Well, thank for you. Me. So thanks. It's been fun. Thanks thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you in Cherry Creek. I got the call and I'm off the wait list. Awesome. So. Congrats. Awesome. We'll see you there. Yeah. See you there, guys. Hope you're my okay. neighbor again. And yes, hopefully. That'd be awesome. Yeah. See you there. Good luck in Old Town. You too. Bye-bye. Great talk with the Zachmans there, Douglas. Uh, really interesting to hear the dichotomy between that father and son. And, and um, man, in a couple of weeks, we've got uh, another talk that you and I are just going to sit down and hammer out together. And mm-hmm. Douglas and I are going to be answering some questions as far as uh, from some emerging artists and, and awesome. uh, yeah. get into some other things as well uh, next time. So if you have questions you want to ask, if you are kind of coming up or an old hand and you have something, jump on our Facebook page and, and ask a question or um, see something you want us to address. And if it's uh, it's appropriate, we'll give it a shot, right? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. You could do uh, private messages or you could do email or just write as a post on our on our Facebook page. So feel free to send us your comments or questions that you'd like us to address. Hey, folks, if you have any interest in uh, T-shirts or stickers or anything like that, we are uh, toying around with the idea of merch for the show to kind of mm-hmm. keep the expenses down that we have addressed. Zap has been kind enough to sponsor us and, and uh, we, we definitely use every penny of that to keep this program going. But if you guys have any interest in that, we're kind of kicking tires on that. So let us know on uh, Facebook or what have you, and we'll talk again soon. Definitely. All right. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by the National Association of Independent Artists. The website is naiaartists.org. Also sponsored by Zapplication. That's zapplication.org. And while you're at it, find us on social media and engage in these conversations. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to be notified when we release new episodes. Oh, and if you like the show, we'd love it if you would give us your five-star rating and offer up your most creative review on your podcast streaming service. See you next time.